As everyone does what is right in their own eyes, perhaps it is time to take another look at a kind of personal character in a leader that can command respect and honor. Let's join our Truth Encounter study leader as he asks how you feel about leadership and then proceeds to talk about a kind of leadership that can begin to solve problems rather than creating them. How do you feel about leadership? If I were to throw out the, that question to you, how do you feel about leaders? Would words like angry, disillusioned, hopeless, would any of that come into your mind? It's really interesting as you look across America today. Uh, Bob Dylan, back in the 60s, when I was learning to play the guitar, one of his poems went a little bit like this. Uh, he wrote, Don't follow the leaders, watch the parking meters. And that was back in 1965. Don't follow the leaders, watch the parking meters. In fact, if you think back from 1965, you got the repetitive drum beat of, I just listed some of the things out, Watergate, Wall Street, SNL, TV evangelism. They're all filled with scandals, all filled with scandals. And so it can make you distrust uh, leadership. I think if there's one thing that you would say about the 60s generation is, we distrust leaders. In fact, I was reading Time Magazine, and their comment, uh, let me just quote for you. Time observed this week that election was not about sending leaders to Washington. It was about sending a message to Washington. How many of you heard in the campaigns, we need to send a message to Washington? We used to send leaders to Washington. Now we send a message to, to Washington. What was that message? And they wrote this. I couldn't believe it. They said, the message that we were sending to Washington was this. How bad we thought our leaders were. The message we wanted to send is that we want to just dump the whole bunch of leadership. It's very, very common view towards leaders today. You know, we can moan about the political leadership crisis. And we can say, well, we ought to just get rid of the government in Washington completely. But I've got news for you. The chances are that like taxes and death, the next time there's an election, there's a really good chance that there will be a lot of people running, right? How many of you think that the next time we have an election that no one's going to choose to run at all? There will be nobody running for office. How many think that will happen? No, they'll, they'll come up with two million. Can you believe it? They spent two and three, four million dollars to run for an election for a job that what do they make? 75,000, some of them, or they make that? And all your expenses, it's incredible. In fact, Time Magazine, I'm really not too worried about leadership because Time Magazine put out 50 for the future. And what they did in the magazine is they, they went through our culture and they picked out the next 50 leaders that are going to be governing in our land. And they highlighted some stories about them. And so there's always leaders that want to step into the wings. And I just was looking down through here and I picked up where does the secular world look for leaders? Where does the secular world, when America is crying over leadership and they're wondering, where are, where are our leaders? And we think all of our leaders are bad. Where does America look for the next generation of leaders? Well, here's one. Stephen Carter, a law professor at Yale. Um, you've got advocates for the homeless. You have Bill Gates, the co-founder of Microsoft. Um, you've got 
presidents of universities, the president of Southwestern Seminary is in here. In other words, when we think about leaders, where do we look? We look to business. We look to the universities. We look to um, you know, those that have made an impact in the media. Oprah Winfrey's in here. And so the next big 50 leaders are right here. In fact, Time even reported the ones that they chose several years ago to be in this big 50 are people like Dan Rather and Barbara Walters. So the world is going to have leaders. You can count on it. Somebody will run. Somebody will move to the front. The question I want to ask you is this. When the secular world looks for leadership, they look to big money. They look for power and prestige. In fact, just to illustrate how that's even come into the church, I had a friend of mine that was a member of a church like ours for many years. He was just a normal guy, you know, one of the good old boys. He had tons of kids, big family. I mean, just family coming out of his ears. And he went for years teaching Sunday school class, being a man of God in the group. Nobody ever asked him to be a leader. Suddenly, he wrote a book. And the book became a mega bestseller. In fact, he sent this book to several different publishers, and they all turned him down. And so he decided he would publish it himself. Billy Graham picked up his book, began to really promote it. It became a mega bestseller, and he instantaneously became a multi-millionaire. Suddenly, the people in his church came to him and said, wouldn't you like to be a leader? Now, why did they do that? Why did they do that? I mean, he'd been in their group for year after year, displaying biblical character, Being a man of God, being especially a very competent father with this gigantic family that he had. And yet, as soon as he had the bucks, that's when they wanted him to be a leader. So what was their issue? Money. In other words, as Americans, it's so easy for us to think about leadership. Ross Perot is a leader in our country primarily because of his ability to make billions of dollars. And that's just the way the secular system works. But what I want you to stop and think is where does God look? When God wants to find a leader, where does God look? I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 because we can find out where God looks for leaders. And as you're turning there, some of you kids are saying, well, I'm not a leader. And some of you teenagers are saying, well, I'm not a leader. And some of you moms say, well, I'm not supposed to be the leader of my home. You dads, you need to listen. But I want all of you to realize, I want to define leadership like this. You know what leadership is? Leadership is being a little bit farther down the path than the person behind you. Headed in the right direction so that you can turn to those that are behind you and you can say, follow me, I'm headed in the right direction. Mary and I and the kids did a lot of camping that one summer when we did the Northwest thing. We went to all the beautiful state parks across the Northwest and almost every single day we went hiking. And often Joel would take the lead and Joel would lead out. What would that mean? It would mean that he was headed in the right direction because Joel usually had his directions right. Joel would be headed in the right direction. Let's suppose Mary is a couple feet behind him on the hiking trail. Joel is leading Mary because Joel is a couple feet ahead of her. He knows where she's going. Let's suppose that Josh is next. Josh is following the lead of Mary. And then you can have Janae next. She's following the lead of Josh. And then I'm taking up the rear, following the lead of the whole bunch of them. They're all leaders. You see, they're all leaders at various stages. And one of the things that I want you to begin to think about the next few weeks is that all of you are leaders. Every single one of you are leaders to someone. You're a leader to someone. Many of you are leaders to more people than you think. 
And every one of you is heading down the pathway of life, and you aren't taking people somewhere, somehow. You influence people. I just casually mentioned my Suburban last summer at Word of Life. Just casually mentioned it in a talk to illustrate guilt feedings, feelings for buying a new automobile. You didn't laugh. That was funny. No, I'm only kidding you. This summer when I went back up there, three guys had bought a Suburban. I wrote GM, said I should get a break on you. I should get a break on mine. What was I doing? Leading. You see, you lead by influence. And every one of you are making statements, you're living your life, you have certain values, so every one of you is leading. Now, where does God say that we should look to find our leaders? Where should we look to find those that need to get farther down the trail and take more of a hold in providing examples for us? Well, he doesn't look to big business. He doesn't look for great orators. He doesn't look for the power of people. He doesn't look for the super motivating coach that can get the team all whomped up. Look what he looks at. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 if you haven't found it yet. And in 1 Timothy 3, we read these words. It says in verse 2, Now the overseer must be above reproach. A one-woman kind of a man, be a good way to translate that, a one-woman kind of a man, so he's a morally pure man. He must be temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not given to much wine, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now, we're going to come back in the coming times we spend together and talk about that character. The character of the leader. But I want you to look at where God looks for leaders. Look what it says in verse 4. He must be one who manages, who gives oversight to what? His own family well. And see that his children obey him with proper respect. And then we've got this incredible verse. If anyone does not know how to manage or how to give oversight, how to give shepherding, how to give leadership, how to give guidance, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? In other words, God's church is God's family. In fact, farther down the passage, it tells us, it calls in verse 15, it says, If I'm delayed, you will know how you ought to conduct yourself in God's household. Turn over to Titus chapter 1, the same emphasis that we look for leaders in families. We look for leaders in our individual family. Look at Titus chapter 1 and look at verse 6. It says that an elder must be blameless, a one-woman kind of a man again, a man whose children believe, they're faithful children, and it says they're not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So the words that are used there are not for like little two-year-olds that need you know, the, the terrible twos, they need some good spankings. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about an elder needs to be a man, and in this case, his adult children, his adult children, the norm of leadership in the church is that his adult children should not be open to the charge of being the playboys around town and the drunkards around town. In other words, what he's saying is that if you want to find spiritual leadership, you need to look in the home. Very, very important. What is your leadership in your home really like? What is the interaction that takes place in your family? Among the, and, and I want you to all to realize, it's not just dad. Dad needs to take the lead. He needs to be the one on that, on that hike towards the goal that God has for us that's really taking the lead. But remember my illustration? Every one of you is lined up. And let me give you an illustration of that. Have you often noticed that older children do really, really well and will be really committed to the Lord? 
But then sometimes the younger children don't follow their older brothers and sisters. You know what causes some of that? Sometimes the older brothers and sisters don't really connect with the younger brothers and sisters so that they provide a good example. They hurt their little brothers and sisters, by, sometimes by abandonment, because they're not really relationally there for them, so that the younger brother and sister isn't going to follow the Lord like the older brother and sister do. You see, when the older brother and sister was in the home to start out with, it was only them and their parents. But with the younger children, it's the parents plus the older brothers and sisters plus the younger children. And the whole family interacts together. And that's why every single one of you need to, need to think with me and think about what's going on in your heart about the kind of leadership that you're having in your home. The kind of leadership that's happening in your family and how your lineup is working out. You say, well, Dave, what's the most important thing that a leader can think about? What's the most important thing that a leader needs to nail down? And I want to tell you, that's where we're going to begin today. And probably for the next several weeks, I want to talk to you about the convictions of a leader. The most important thing about leadership are your beliefs, your convictions. And I want to embarrass you, but I want to ask you, it'd be real important for you to take out a sheet of white paper and start jotting down, it, down on it, this I believe. These are the things that I am willing to live and die for. You say, well, Dave, that's, you know, that's too philosophical. I don't really think like that. That's not where I'm at. Oh, yes, you do. Every single one of you in this room have convictions. Every single one of you. There is not one body breathing in this room that doesn't have very intense, very powerful convictions. Every one of you do. The issue that you need to come to grips with is what are they and are they right? And I want us to turn into passage because the most fundamental conviction that we can begin with, the most fundamental conviction that I could get across to you, the number one thing that should be on your list is stated to you in something that you've repeated over and over and over again. How many of you have ever stood up in a church and all together you, you recited something that began like this? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. How many of you have ever done that? What is that? That's the Apostles' Creed. It's an ancient creed of the church. It really doesn't go all the way back to the Apostles, but it is one of the early attempts by a group of believers who had a pastor like Dave Wurtson that told the congregation, you need to come up with a brief summary statement of what you believe and what you're willing to live and die for. And they began in a very important place. They began with God. If you're going to be a leader that's really tuned in to what's right, your fundamental conviction is going to need to be, I believe in God. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Then you say, well, Dave, that's no big deal. I mean, of course I believe that. You know, most of our society doesn't believe that. In fact, most of our society believes that whatever gods that are out there, whatever gods there might be, who knows what they are. God really can't be known. In fact, some of our young people are beginning to really wrestle with that. As they go away to university and they're exposed to other systems of thought, one of the big issues is how do you know there's even a God that's out there? A lot of our society doesn't really believe there's a God that's really connected with us and they deny that confession that there's a Father in heaven, that there's a personal, loving caring God that really wants to be involved in our life, a lot of our society says, I don't really believe that. God is distant. Whatever might be out there, he's gone somewhere. You see, a lot of our society worships power. They worship the force. 
And we've talked about that. A lot of your society believes that the ultimate thing in life is just energy. If you believe totally in the scientific model of life, then the thing that's out there is energy, the big E. That's power. Philosophically, that just comes over into the ultimate thing that's out there is just power. And that leads to certain kinds of lifestyle. A lot of us believe that, you know, that, that just, that's what there is. Shirley MacLaine believes that you're God. So when you say, well, you know, Shirley, what do you believe? She says, well, I believe God is you. It's inside of you. And a lot of people believe that. And you need to come to grips with what do you believe about God and about the most important thing that you can communicate your life to. You see, we live in a society where no longer can I just take it for granted that everyone believes in the God of the Bible. We believe in God the Father Almighty that's revealed in Genesis chapter 1. As you go to work tomorrow... As you go to work tomorrow, you're going to be exposed to all different kinds of people who believe all different kinds of things about God. In fact, you can take your kids, like one of my friends did, to just go see an innocent movie, like the remake of The Miracle 34th Street. At the very end of the movie, they closed the movie with a clincher. And I'm not sure I have it all just right, but I think the clincher was something like this. The, you know, that's the movie where they're trying to prove whether or not Santa Claus exists or not. And the big clincher by the lawyer defending Santa Claus where they stood up and, and, and portrayed to the group, well, you all believe in God and he's invisible. God is invisible and you believe in him. Santa Claus is invisible. You ought to believe in him. So God and Santa Claus are the same. They're both invisible. They're both figments of your imagination. They're both stories of love. They're both stories that make us feel real nostalgic. But don't worry about the reality of one or the other. Who cares? Just as long as it makes us feel good at this time of the year. And that's what a lot of people believe about God. That's where a lot of your friends believe about God. Is that what you believe about God? Now you say, well, Dave, man, this is a brand new time. They never faced that kind of a world before where people were worshiping the forest and where people were worshiping figments of their imagination and, and making up stories about the gods. We never, the world's never been like this before. Oh, yes, it has. I want you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 17. Because I want to introduce you to the Apostle Paul because he was one believer that just took it upon himself to get up to his armpits in a world that was filled with misconceptions about God. And that's what I'd like you to get excited about. I want you to really think through what you think about God. I want you to begin to expose some of the false ideas you have about God. And I want us to learn to be like the Apostle Paul so that we can invade every area of our society with a true message of God. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We've got a stirring story. We find the Apostle Paul all by himself in a city. The Apostle Paul is all by himself in a major city. Look at Acts chapter 17, and we begin reading with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, that was waiting for his sidekicks, his other companions on his missionary journey were uh, back in, in Berea, or they were back in Thessalonica, they were back in some of the cities that he, had, that he had been ministering in. And Paul went on ahead of them, so he was in a city all by himself. So you can feel it. How many of you have ever been in a major metropolitan area all by yourself? You know, it's scary. How do you feel? Man, when I go to New York, and I've got no friends around, and I arrive at the airport, and I take a taxi cab to a hotel or something, it's intimidating. That city is intimidating. I mean, there's people everywhere. There are just all kinds of things, you know, all kinds of, of things coming at you, all kinds of neon signs going. Same thing in Chicago. 
It's intimidating, intimidating to be in a major metropolitan area all by yourself. Now, what do you do? Well, I'm tempted to just hole up in the hotel. You know, I want to just get by myself and kind of protect myself because I'm afraid someone's going to mug me. And so I want to try to be safe. I might have enough courage to go down and, and go down to the restaurant. What did Paul do when he was in a city, a major city all by himself? Now, just so you have a little bit of background, if Athens was the leading cultural center of the ancient world. In fact, when the Romans conquered Athens, it was so beautiful, it was so incredibly uh, full of culture and filled with beautiful architecture and filled with beautiful music and filled with the, the, the highest development of human culture up to that time. So the Romans didn't destroy it. In fact, they didn't even, con- they didn't really even conquer it. They, they made the city a free city within their empire. In fact, you could argue very strongly that the Athenians conquered the Romans because culturally the Romans became Greek. It was an incredibly artistic, aesthetic, cultural city. Kind of like Midlothian. <laughs> no, I had to tease you a little bit. That's what Athens was like, a major metroplex of the ancient world. Now, what does Paul do in the midst of this city? Look what he does. It says that he noticed he became greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Paul, and the word that's used for that, the NIV translates distressed, is a word that means he got angry. He was irritated. But it's not just an anger. You know, there's a lot of Americans right now that are really getting angry about things. They yell about this, they yell about that. It's not just that kind of anger. There's also a deep concern in this anger that leads him to give himself an acts of love. In other words, the Apostle Paul isn't just a mouth that gets really angry about the way things are and starts lambasting people about it. But the word that's used here means that he was stirred deep within his soul. And why was he stirred? Because he noticed that the city was filled with idols. In other words, Paul didn't just see the beautiful architecture. Like when Mary and I went to Athens, the Parthenon was under reconstruction. You couldn't even walk under it hardly because you'd get a rock down on your head. That's always what happens to mankind's beautiful artifacts. They always crumble. And that'll happen even to our marvelous city of Dallas someday. Someday if the Lord tarries and several hundred years go by, there'll be some archaeologist digging up gold-plated glass somewhere, trying to figure out what they did in this building. That's the way culture is. But when Paul was in Athens, like when I was in Athens, the beautiful Acropolis had already been destroyed. And it's, it's just relics. It's, arch, it's, it's archaeological relics. But when Paul was there, it was in its heyday. Beautiful buildings everywhere. But you know what? Every one of those buildings were not just relics. They were temples to all of these different gods, all the hundreds of gods that the Greeks worshipped. And people would come giving their offerings. In other words, the people of Greece, in the midst of all their culture, in the midst of all their art, they did not have an understanding of the true God. Now, how did Paul react to that? And I want to ask you a question. How do you react? As you work this coming week, and that guy next door to you or that girl next door to you is running helter-skelter after the big bucks, maybe they just graduated from SMU or from Baylor or some other school, and man, they're just trying to climb up the ladder, and man, they just have very little to do with God, and at this time of the year, they're really involved in the party scene. There isn't any real sense of a biblical revealed God in their life. How do you feel about that? Do you envy a little bit? Do you see the the up-and-coming power, and do you envy it? I can. The Lord wants us to allow the Holy Spirit to help us, not to envy that, 
But to see the reality of what's there. To see the reality of maybe a young life that's going to pour itself in to the goddess of materialism only to get up in their 50s and then be dumped and have absolutely nothing. Or maybe to achieve it all and realize that they still have nothing. Do you as a believer in the true God, does your heart get distressed inside of you so that you want to engage that person, that you want to, you want to be able to get to know them so you can communicate truth to them? You see, I want you to get burdened about that because that's going to change. That's going to change my life. It's going to change your life. I want us to become like the Apostle Paul. I want us to have the heartbeat that, so that when we go into a town, when we go into a city, as we start to see what people are saying and doing about God and what they think and what they say about God, and we see how, how contrary to what the Bible is saying about God, as we see that they, they don't really know God that we'll have a burden to help them to come and know God because God has become so precious to us. One of the things I'd like to happen over our teaching the next few times we have together is I'd like you to begin to think and therefore begin to get to know how precious it is to really know God, to really have him in your life. That's what moved Paul. Now, what does Paul do about the fact that he's really moved about this idolatry? Look what he says in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. Paul's first approach in, a, in the city of Athens was to find the religious people. Do you know that in your culture, in your culture there are religious people and non-religious people? The religious people are the ones that when you start talking about, you know, they say, where do you go to church? They say, I go to Midlothian Bible Church. And they say, well, I go to the Baptist so-and-so, or I go to the Presbyterian so-and-so, or I go to the Methodist so-and-so, or I go to the Catholic so-and-so. You got what I'm talking about? Those are the religious people. You automatically begin to jive with them. If you're like me and because you're a religious person, you begin to jive with them. So that's one group of people. But you know what? A lot of you just assume, well, if a person tells me they're Jewish, that means they must be in. That's fine. I have my faith. They have their faith. Isn't it nice to be religious together? If that's what you believe, then you don't have an accurate knowledge of God. You see, Paul was Jewish. I want you to really understand that Paul was Jewish, as Jewish, as Jewish as you could get. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. When he went into Athens, he went into a synagogue and he dialogued in the synagogue. What did he dialogue about? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one that Yahweh said would come into the world from the Old Testament. Do you believe that? That's one of the things you need to think about. Because most of your society believe that there's a, there's, a, there's a Jesus for Christian Gentiles, the Goyim, and there is Moses and Yahweh for the Jewish people. And never the twain shall meet. Well, that's just not true. Moses leads you to Jesus. And you should be able to open up this book and show how the Old Testament predicted that Jesus would come, that he would be the Messiah and where he would be born. You need to start getting down. Micah 5.2. You need to know Isaiah 53. And I want you to begin to get really serious about that. You need to say, Dave, why do you want us to do that? Because life is exciting. When you start to interact with religious people about what they believe, and you're able to intelligently explain what you believe, they start asking you questions you don't have the answer to. So you know what happens on a Sunday morning while I'm ranting and raving at you, you raise your hand and say, hey, wait, Dave, wait a minute. There's something here in the text. I had an unbeliever ask me right here, and I don't have the answer. What, what's the answer to this question? And suddenly our time together is not Boringsville, USA. 
It's not, you know, sitting here waiting for the chicken to get warm. Suddenly, this time on Sunday morning becomes your life support thing to get ready for the action. And it's fun. Don't be afraid if you don't have all the answers. You don't. I don't. And I've been studying it for years. So cheer up. But the exciting thing is to realize that as you really begin to dialogue and really begin to enter into what people are saying and doing in their religions, and you're able to communicate accurately the truth of Jesus, there is tremendous power in that. And Jesus works to bring new life. Hashim is here today from, from, as it occurred from Iraq. Hashim is here today because a believer had the courage to share that Jesus was the Messiah. For a Kurd, for someone living in Iraq. It's not just an American thing. And that's very important to realize. So there's all different kinds of religious people, Islamic people, Jewish people, Protestant people, all this religion, Paul dialogued with them. But you know what? He didn't just stop with the religious people. That's one group that's out there. There's another group that's out there too. Look what else he did. It's in the verse 17 that he reasoned in the Jewish synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks. As well, here's the second group, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, what was the marketplace? The marketplace was the Galleria of the first century. It was the, it was the town east of the first century. It was the park mall of the first century. That's what the Agora was. They bought and sold in the marketplace. And just like in our society, they do a whole lot more in malls today than just buy and sell. Teenagers go to look one another over. Teenagers go to meet with their friends. If you want to get in with teenagers today, where do you go? To a mall. If you're retired, some of you are retired in the group. And you say, well, man, I can't serve Jesus anymore. Man, I'm weak and decrepit. In fact, I have to get up every day and I've had so many heart attacks, I've got to walk in the mall every day. You ever look around at all the people walking in the mall with you? Have you ever noticed how they all sit down on those, on those brick you know, places around the flowers or in the chairs or along the way? If you start walking around the wall and, mall and start looking around, you'll find out there's a lot of people that just happen to be there. And if you'll open your mouth and begin to share with them, you'll develop relationships and you can start to share about Jesus with them. That's how it happens. A friend of mine plays 42. He's retired. He plays 42 every day. And almost every week he gives me a running commentary on his reaching out to his 42 teams. In fact, he told me just this morning, uh, last night he told me, one of them softening up. That's what it takes, hundreds of hours of 42 to soften up some really hard-nosed cowboys sometimes. And that's what I want. I want want you to get a vision of that. So many of you have church locked into what we're doing right now. And I want you to realize that Paul and the first century Christians only viewed their gathering together as prep time to go out there and share. That's what I want you to do. Now, what happens when you do that? When you share like that, as you start to communicate like that, you know what's going to happen? You're going to have some people, you're going to have some people that get really excited about what you're talking about. Some of them may have questions about it. Some of them are going to wonder, you know, what in the world is going on? And they're going to ask you, they're going to ask you to come and they're going to invite you to come to speak at some of their gatherings. What happened to Paul one day, we look at it, some philosophers came by. Look at verse 19. It says in verse 18 that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. 
Some of them ask, what is this seed picker? And the word there is a word that means, who is this country bumpkin, this guy that's picked a little bit of wisdom here and picked a little bit of wisdom here? What's this seed picker? What in the world does he have to say? What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarks, he seems to be advocating some foreign new gods is the idea. This guy seems to be trying to preach to us about some new gods. They said this Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they got it straight. Paul was talking to him about Jesus the Savior and about the resurrection. So these guys invite him. Then they took him. They brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived in that, in that city spent their time doing nothing but taking a, talking about and listening to the latest ideas. In other words, what you have is a group of university people, you might say, and it's kind of like what Paul was doing is kind of like what a guy named um, Cliff Connectly. Cliff Connectly is a fellow that uh, works with the probe ministry. Just happened to pull this out of my out of my folder before I came in here, and it says Cliff Connectly is coming back to the UT West Mall. We would really appreciate your participation in this year's outreach, and it goes forward. And what Cliff does is go out on the West Mall. And he just dialogued. The West Mall at UT is like the free speech center of Berkeley University out in California. And you can just communicate. And Cliff goes out, and during this week, hundreds of students will dialogue with him. I'll have to get, you know, the, this time again. Maybe some of you can go down there next year when he does it. It's really an exciting time. And Jonathan says all the university kids, they spread the news all over campus. They put flyers out. Cliff is coming. And Cliff does what Paul was doing in this passage. In other words, what I want you to do is to see what Paul did in the ancient world we can do today. I'd like some of our young people to, to go on and get training and get trained in apologetics and become like Cliff, able to go out on a university campus and give an answer for the hope that's within them. Look how the flyer closes. It says this. One thing is for sure. Cliff makes Jesus Christ the issue on the West Mall during the week that he's here. What a great thing to say about a guy. Cliff makes Jesus Christ the issue on the West Mall in the time that he's here. I want to ask you, in your work, whatever your job might be, as people get to know you, does Jesus Christ start to become the issue? That's what I want you to start to get engaged in. Because that's when your life will start to become incredibly exciting and powerful and influential for the kingdom of God. So what does Paul talk to people? We're just going to be able to begin, just be able to get going this. I want to talk to you about the two people. There's two groups of people that were gathered to hear Paul, and then we'll be able to go on the next time and develop what he said. There's two groups of people that confronted Paul, and these are the two groups that are going to confront you. One of them is a group, you notice it says that a group of Stoics. It says here that a group of Stoics confronted the Apostle Paul. Do you realize that you're going to meet Stoics? You say, well, Dave, who in the world are Stoics? I don't think I've ever met a Stoic. Well, the Stoics was a group of people that began, and they, they followed the teaching of a guy named Zeno. There's probably no Zenos around today, but he lived in 340 through 265. He founded this school, and he was a founder of the Stoics, which became a very powerful Greek philosophy. Now, stay with me. Because you're going to meet, I guarantee you this week, that you're going to meet one of these same kind of individuals that the Apostle Paul met. 
Because I believe that almost everybody that you meet divides up into a Stoic or an Epicurean. You say, Dave, let's begin with the Stoics. What in the world do the Stoic believe? Well, F.F. Bruce, who was a marvelous university professor over in England, summed it up like this. The Stoic believed that the rational faculty was the main thing in man. So the Stoic is the rationalist, the person that worships their head. So you say, Dave, Stoic, I want you to think of big head. Say that, Stoic, big head, okay, you got it, big head. Big head, rational facilities. He stressed individual self-sufficiency. In theology, they were essentially pantheistic. They believed in what was called the world soul. Anybody heard anything about the world spirit, the world soul? That's what the Stoics believed. They also believed that the mark of greatness was to keep your feelings totally under control and for you to give yourself to moral earnestness. They had a high sense of duty, so they, the Athenian marines would have probably been Stoics. And they were marked by a pride. They had a spirit that was very foreign to Christianity. Let me ask you if you've ever read... Let me read a poem to you. and I, I don't usually read poetry to you, but let me read this to you and see if you've ever heard this before because this is the essence of Stoicism. Now listen to this spirit. Where you'll hear this kind of of thinking is at a valedictorian speech when the student doesn't really know Christ in a personal way. Because if you don't know Christ in a personal way, if you're really not connected with God, then you're going to have one of two viewpoints and usually you're going to take the the rational, disciplined, reasoned approach or you're going to take the Epicurean approach, which I'll talk to you about in just a second. Have you ever heard these words, out of the night that covers me? You feel today that you're in a night that's covering you? Black as the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. This individual believes that I don't know anything about the gods that are out there. Whatever gods they might be, I don't even know who they are. But what I'm really focused on is my unconquerable soul. The one reality that I have is myself. You know anything about philosophy? That's Descartes. I think, therefore I am. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms, but the horror of the shade. The only thing I have to look forward to Beyond this place of wrath and tears, the struggle of life, all there is, is the realm of the dead. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. That's the Stoic. Burying that fear of death. Burying that fear of the shapes. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the the scroll. I don't care whatever gods it might be. If they've got a scroll against me, I don't care. Because I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. That film, that, that, that poem Invictus by um, W.E. Henley, how many of you have ever heard those words? I'm sure you have. That's stoicism. As you hear a poem like that, you know what I want? I want you to get angry, but I also want you to really hurt for someone like that. Do you know what it's like to live just stealing yourself against physical weakness, against the possibility of disease, against the relentless flow of the years, of wondering what's going to be out there when you pass over into eternity, and all you're saying is, I'm the captain of my fate, 
man, who can control? Man, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to, I've never been into death. I wouldn't want to trust my own fate to my own beliefs, my own soul for one second. What can I do? What can I do to keep my heart beating? What can I do to, to stave away disease? What can I do to stop time from marching away in my life? What can I do to stop death? Nothing. You see, that kind of stoic pride is a dead-end street. You say, Dave, will I meet that person this week? Yeah. That's the high-powered executive that thinks money's the ultimate answer. Some of your bosses are like that. They fly on their Learjet from here to there, and they travel, and they, they try to find all kinds of neat things. They're very disciplined. They're very, they get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and, and, man, they've got half their work done by 8 o'clock. Man, they're flying away. Man, they're reasonable. It's always the bottom line, always looking at the, at the flow charts. That's the stoic. Do you envy them? Or do you love them and, and understand how much they need you to be able to communicate? There's a different truth. There's a different reality. There's a God that's really there. So I want you this week to be like Paul, and I don't want you to be intimidated by the Stoics. I want you to have a heart for them. That man that can never show his feelings is destroying his family. A lot of you have been learning that in the Gary Smalley takes. That man who handles the pain of life by never crying, by never putting his arm around anybody, by never showing any weakness, that man is destroying his family and himself. And he's, and he's, and he's rapidly moving into a world of total isolation. The true God of the universe wants to deliver him. I believe in God, the Father, the personal God, who's also emotional, we're going to learn, who also feels and who cares. So care for the Stoic and try to bring the message of the true God to him. The second group are the Epicureans. The Epicurean school was founded by Epicurus about 300 years before Christ came. What did they believe? Well, they believed in atomic physics. They were the early evolutionists that followed the teaching of Democritus, and their belief was that life is just chance and the flow of probabilities. So what you need to do is just live for pleasure. That's the chief end of life. And all the Americans said, amen. The pleasure most worth enjoying was this. Now, don't think, we think of the Epicurean being the, the honcho playboy that's out there, you know, ransacking everything and getting drunk as a skunk. That's not what Epicurus taught. He said you need to live just for personal tranquility Try to be as free of pain as you can. Take as many aspirin as you can. Try to stay free of disturbing passions. Anybody hurt any tea this week? You need to keep those negative people away from you. Stay away from anybody that talks about anything negative. Anybody hear that kind of teaching? That's Epicureanism. Stay away from any disturbing passions, and especially the superstitious fears, including the superstitious fear of death. So the Epicureans tried to, the Stoics tried to steal away the fear of death. The Epicureans tried to laugh away or just ignore the fear of death. Neither one of them had really found the answer to life. The Apostle Paul talked to these two people. The Apostle Paul talked to these two people. And what did he tell them? What did we tell them? I want to close today by just reading to you in Gene Peterson's The Message this text that we've been studying today. And I think it'll help you to, to feel, maybe in an immediate way, the kind of message that the Apostle Paul... Paul begins by talking to the Athenians about this unknown God, this unknown God that they had even built a little altar to, they'd even written on the altar. Paul said, the unknown God that you are trying to worship, I'm going to tell you what the real God 
is really like. Look what he says. The longer Paul waited in Athens for Silas and Timothy, the angrier he got. All those idols. The city was a junkyard of idols. He discussed it with the Jews and other like-minded people at their meeting place. And every day, he went out on the streets and talked with anyone who happened along. He got to know some of the Epicurean and Stoic intellectuals pretty well through these conversations. Some of them dismissed him with sarcasm. What an airhead. While others listened to him and invited him to go on about Jesus and the resurrection. And they were intrigued. Boy, that's a new slant on the gods. Tell us more. These people got together and they asked him to make a public presentation over at the Areopagus, where things were a little quieter. They said, this is, this is a new one on us. We've never heard anything quite like it before. Where did you come up with this stuff anyway? Explain it so we can understand. Downtown Athens was a great place for gossip. There were always people hanging around, natives and tourists alike, waiting for the latest tidbit about just about anything. So Paul took his stand in the open space at the Areopagus and laid it out for them. It is plain to see that you Athenians take your religion seriously. When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines that I came across. And then I found one inscribed, To the God nobody knows. I'm here to introduce this, you, to this God, so you can worship him intelligently, know who you are dealing with. The God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him as if he couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures, the creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so we could seek after God. And not just grope around the dark, but actually find him. God doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in him. We can't get away from him. One of your poets said it well. We're the God created. Well, if we are the God created, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think we could hire a sculptor to chisel out a God out of stone for us, does it? God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better. But the time has passed. The unknown is now known. And he's calling for a radical life change. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything's set right. And he has already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. At the phrase raising him from the dead, the listeners split. Some laughed at him and walked off making jokes. Others said, let's do this again. We want to hear more. But that was it for the day, and Paul left. There were still others, it turned out, who were convinced then and there and stuck with Paul. Among them were Dionysius the Areopagite and the woman named Damaris. Never forget my dad's message. Some believed, some mocked, some doubted, some believed. That's what's going to happen to you when you really get involved in declaring God as revealed in his son in the marketplace. I want you to write in your list, number one, we believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I want you to start getting convictions about that. I want you dads to build your family, not on a myth, not on a fairy tale, but on the conviction that the God of the universe 
really has spoken and he really cares about your individual life and he really has purpose and plan and design for all that's happening to you. It'll change the way you lead your family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we've been able to talk about knowing you as the fundamental conviction of our life, that you're there. And Lord, I just would pray that you'd help us to begin to do some serious thinking about what you're really like and about what you care about and what you think and what your attributes really are. I'd ask you, Lord, that in the midst of a a generation of Americans that often know so little about what they really believe, I want to ask you with all my heart to help me to not be boring. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to not be uh, just intellectual and philosophical. Lord, I just would ask you that, and, and I know that only your spirit can do this, I pray that your spirit would powerfully reveal who you are and what you're like and what we need to believe about you. Because this is the beginning of every one of our leadership potentials. This is when we can be sure that we're headed in the right place. We need to begin with you. And so, Lord, I just would ask you that with Paul, that we would get serious about knowing God. And I pray that loving you and knowing you would become, would become the fundamental conviction the fundamental purpose of our life. Help us to go out into a world of people that live just for their heads, the Stoics. Help us to go out into a world that live just for their hearts, just for their emotions, the Epicureans. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a different people, a people that live for God, the God who in him we live and move and have our being. Lord, help us not to be embarrassed about getting into conversations about you as we go out into the marketplace this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is one 888 668 7884